You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, Live Different Podcast listeners? It is Matt coming to you with another awesome episode. Today, we are talking to somebody who is running for the president of the United States of America. That's really exciting to me. Uh, I actually have had this episode lined up in the queue for a couple months, and it happened that last week he came out on Joe Rogan. So I wanted to get this episode out because, uh, well, I got to say I'm a little competitive about the podcast and wanted to say, yeah, I know about this guy first. Anyway, uh, should be an exciting episode also. If you want to come to Costa Rica with us, I'm headed down there today. But if you want to come April 24th through 29th, we'd love to practice some yoga with you. Adventure, see the rainforest, et cetera, et cetera. You know the deal. If you've been a listener, let me know on Instagram, Matt Wilson TV. Send me a direct message or you can check out the itinerary on under 30 experiences. And no, you do not need to be under 30 because, well, I'm not, so had to bend the rules a little bit there. No, it's always been open to people for, for people ages 21 to 35. So anyway, guys, thank you for listening. Hope to engage with you all. And yeah, send me a message again and, and let me know what you guys think of the episode. Some really interesting ideas here. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today we are here with Andrew Yang. Andrew is a presidential candidate for none other than the United States of America. He is a Democrat running and was previously the founder and CEO of Venture for America, a fellowship program to help entrepreneurs start businesses in cities like Detroit and Cleveland. He has a bachelor's from Brown, a law degree from Columbia. And as I've read, he says he's the opposite of Donald Trump, an Asian American who likes math, he is the author of Smart People Should Build Things, as well as The War on Normal People. He has some really interesting ideas that I'm excited to talk to him about today. So without further ado, Andrew, welcome. Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, of course. Of course. You're very welcome. We're from the same basic geographic area just outside of New York City, uh, an hour or so in New York State. And... Um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more. Of course, you've made headlines with your, well, I call it your idea, but running on the idea of universal basic income. A lot of people have probably never even heard of this idea in general, so we can get into that. And another topic that's really near and dear to my heart is having these entrepreneurial ecosystems in different areas that are not just Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley, uh, that there are, you know, I've been all over the United States and all over the world for that matter, looking at these entrepreneurial ecosystems and been involved with them online, offline, etc. And you're someone who has put people into places like, as I said before, Cleveland and Detroit. My family is originally from Flint, Michigan. So I see what you're trying to do and I like it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I started Venture for America in 2011, believing that, and really a lot of what you stand for, which is that uh, we need more entrepreneurs, we need more people creating jobs and opportunities and companies around the country. And I did that for six years, very proud of the work that we did. But I grew to realize that technology is transforming our economy in fundamental ways that are going to make it much, much harder to create enough jobs to go around 
And you can see that already in Donald Trump's winning the presidency in 2016, where to me, it's clear that the reason he won is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, where your family's from, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, all these swing states in the Midwest he needed to win. And now we're about to do the same thing to millions of retail workers, call center workers, fast food workers, truck drivers, which unfortunately are the most common jobs in the U.S. economy. And so we need to evolve very, very quickly. And as you mentioned, I built my campaign around universal basic income for that reason. Okay, so before we get into how technology is really disrupting those jobs that you have laid out, can you talk about what universal basic income actually is and how people listening would be affected? Sure. So universal basic income is a policy where every member of a society, every American citizen between the ages of 18 and 64 in this case, receive $1,000 a month, free and clear, no questions asked. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you're a citizen and an adult, you'll get $1,000 a month. And that's the way it will affect you. And the reason why this is so important is that for someone like I, I'm a serial entrepreneur and I've helped mentor hundreds of entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs have a real mindset of abundance and possibility, as you know. So you think you can make good things happen if you work hard and you can build something that's going to grow in time. And we need more and more Americans thinking and acting that way. And unfortunately, right now, our economy is trending in, in the opposite direction. I know that your community includes many young people, but young people have been set up to fail in this economy. Let's be honest. You know, you come out of college, if you're lucky enough to graduate from college, you're graduating with 37K plus in debt, and there's a 44% chance you're going to get a job that doesn't even require a college degree. And 94% of the new jobs that have been created uh, in the last number of years have been temp jobs or contractor jobs or gig jobs and don't have meaningful benefits or growth trajectories. So we need to make fundamental changes to this economy to help Americans transition through what is, unfortunately, the greatest economic transformation in the history of the world. Sure. I, I, I can only imagine the, the challenges that lay ahead. So the first thing that people are going to say when they hear universal basic income is this stigmatism about work and handouts. Oh my God, I didn't do anything to deserve this $1,000 a month. I just won the citizenship lottery. Why do I deserve this? And what do you say to people when they come at you with that? Well, you know, like the most compelling stuff's really in the numbers and the facts, where if you see the direct impact of getting $1,000 a month, individuals or families, what you see is that people's mental health improves, their physical health improves, their relationships improve, their family lives improve, domestic violence goes down. And so in real life, it just makes life better. The big stigma that you mentioned is that somehow getting money um, would keep you from working. And we're not talking about like oodles and oodles of money. We're talking about $1,000 a month, which is below the poverty line in the United States. The poverty line is $12,770. So if you're below the poverty line, are you really going to quit your job? <laughs> like, of course not. Like if you're a server at a restaurant making $24,000 a year and you quit your job on $12,000, then you're going to take a 50% pay cut and you could barely make ends meet right now. But if you stay in your job, maybe you cut back one shift, you're making like $30,000 and then you can save a little bit. You can maybe spend a little bit of time with your child. Like that, there's nothing anti-work about someone getting $1,000 a month. It's actually the opposite because... 
throughout the economy would grow the consumer economy by more than 10% and create 3 million new jobs. Because if you look at the reality for most Americans, if you're living paycheck to paycheck or week to week or month to month, then you aren't starting businesses, you're not buying homes, you're not buying cars, you're not moving, you're not doing all the things that we need to build a vibrant economy. So this is very pro-work. That's the biggest thing that people get wrong. Sure. So I'll tell you, Andrew, I graduated in 2008 from college with a business degree, and I wanted to go out there and make something of myself. But of course, it was very difficult to get a job. And uh, so I saw a lot of my classmates who had jobs lined up upon graduation actually have these offers rescinded. Sure. Sure, they went to go to work in finance and they were the easiest ones to cut. It's easy to fire somebody who hasn't even stepped in the door yet. So I saw a lot of that happening. And then I wanted to go and start a business, but I had, who knows, $30,000 in debt that I had to start paying immediately as soon as I got a job. So it was very difficult for me to be able to even start that. I, you know, having that capital, you start in a hole. And so it re- I found that... For young college graduates trying to start a business, I mean, that really hampered, that really hinders the ability to innovate. And you see a lot of these very young CEOs are the ones who go and take risks, but they cannot do that. And sure, it's easy to sleep at your parents if you have that opportunity and be able to work on something in your parents' garage as as you hear so many startup stories go. Uh, But then you have this other problem with the debt. So can you talk about how your plan would encourage innovation amongst young people? Sure. So again, if you're a young person, exactly what you just described, and I had school loans too, it's harder for you to take meaningful risks because you have this debt load and it's hard to start a business or get some capital together. So everyone listening to this or watching this, if you were getting $1,000 a month, then all of a sudden your pressure load would ease you would know that you could pay back your school loans. And I have a separate plan to try and help people forgive their student loans because if you look at the numbers, we're up to $1.5 trillion in, in school debt, and it's immoral, a lot of it. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Why did college get two and a half times more expensive over the last 25 years, even though it hasn't changed in quality? It hasn't gotten better, I hate to say it. Uh, it's just gotten a lot, lot more expensive. So we need to forgive a lot of that student debt but independent of that, if you're a young person getting $1,000 a month, all of a sudden it makes it much more realistic for you to take risks, for you to try and start a business, for you to get some friends together and say, let's try and work on something for a certain number of months. Um, right now, we're putting young people in particular in the opposite corner, where we're saying, like, we're going to crush you with debt. You're not going to be able to get ahead. And so the last thing people are going to do is, is take a risk or start a business in that context. Sure. I, I, I could not agree more with that. I wanted to ask you, Andrew, also, so young people, they're trying to start businesses. And, and of course, this podcast listenership is mainly people between the ages and, and of 21 and 35. And a lot of times they are apprehensive to take the, these risks, etc. And I, I totally understand that. But one of the things that's debated within universal basic income is it's a lot different to give your 25-year-old single guy the money when you have a 25 mother of three who might be single in that case. And so why $1,000 across everyone, including people who are making six figures? Well, you want to universalize it and destigmatize it. You want to make it so it's a right of citizenship and it's not like, oh, you get it because 
you suck. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just like everyone gets it. We're all owners and shareholders of the richest, most advanced society in the history of the world. We all get a dividend. Like companies declare dividends all the time. And everyone says that's good, smart management. And so we can do it too. And this is a deeply American idea. Thomas Paine was for it. Martin Luther King was for it. It passed the House of Representatives twice in 1971 under Richard Nixon. In one state, Alaska has had a dividend for 36 years, where everyone in the state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. So you don't want to tie it to the fact that someone's making under a certain amount of money because then it stops being a dividend and then people start thinking that you're like, oh, you're taking from me to give to someone else. Sure. And do you see that now when you can log online, it, we live in a day and age where we live in a very advanced economy, we can log online, find absolutely any job we want and pick up and move there, that the families are being spread out. And not everybody has the ability to well, I'm going to live in with my parents and start a business, or I'm going to, you know, I have aging parents now. Okay, I want to move back with them because I believe it. you've spoken about the ability to move is very important, but then you spread out families and then something like $1,000 would really help someone if they wanted to work part-time to be able to take care of their aging father or, or be able to pay for health care for or a uh, child care for a new child, but still be able to maintain their career. So have you thought through any of these types of things? Oh, yeah. It's one reason why I love universal basic income so much is, is because it frees you up and it broadens the definition of work. Like right now, if you're taking care of your aging parent, that's really, really hard work, you know, but the market will pay you zero for that. And your employer will pay you zero for that. So it's like, you know, we have to know that that's some of the most important activity that we can do as human beings. Also, I have two young kids. It's the same thing. You're taking care of your kid. That's a lot of work. But again, the market will value that at zero. So if you have universal basic income, it helps broaden the definition of work. So if you're working on your own thing, or you're an artist, or you're creative, or you're a caregiver, or you're really just trying to take care of yourself for a particular period of time, like they're all different forms of work. It's just right now, our society has really started to like narrow down the definition of work to be something that's purely market-based. Like if you go and someone's paying you, then that's work and everything else is horseshit, more or less. (laughs) It's the way that, that we're increasingly getting like conditioned. Sure. And so... To your point about moving for work and like part-time being able to spend time with your kids, we need to make people much, much more flexible. And one of the things, the stats in this country are terrifying, where business formation rates in 90% of the country are in multi-decade lows, and Americans are moving across state lines at lower rates than they have in decades. Um, We're having fewer kids, we're getting married less, like any... A uh, sign of prosperity or abundance you can think of. We're even living shorter periods of time. Our life expectancy has declined for three years in a row, the first time this century, more or less, in a developed country. And it's because people are literally killing themselves and overdosing on drugs at record levels. So anything you look at to determine the health of our society, we're deeply unhealthy right now, in large part because we are defining work so narrowly. And when you're out there speaking to people, Are you hearing this from them or is everyone just believing the rhetoric that we're hearing from Donald Trump that 
the economy is booming and the only problem is the Fed and look how great of a job I'm doing? Or are you seeing people struggle for real out there? Everyone can relate to this struggle. If you're listening to this, you probably can relate too. I mean, 57% of Americans can't pay an unexpected $500 bill right now. The vast majority of people are living paycheck to paycheck month to month. And stock market prices going up, though they're coming back down right now. But the bottom 47% of Americans own zero stock, and the bottom 80% of Americans own only 8% of stock. So if you're in the bottom 80% of Americans, which is obviously the vast majority of us, the stock market has very little relationship to how you're doing, you know, or, or how your family's doing. So what, the struggle is very real and it's everywhere. And when I go around the country, that's what I hear. I hear it. And the reason why Donald Trump won is because of the struggle. You know, it's like people are freaking angry and miserable and depressed. And then Donald Trump says, hey, like, I'm going to fix it. His solutions are garbage and nonsense. But the diagnosis was not wrong. And so what I'm saying is, look, the economy is deeply broken and doesn't serve our needs as, again, the owners and citizens of this country. So let's make some big changes. Let's declare a dividend and start solving these problems. But one of the frustrating things in politics is like people are not arguing beyond images and ideas. Like I'm talking about real dollars and cents. I'm saying like, look, every American adult should just get a thousand bucks a month. That would be a game changer. That would create hundreds of thousands of new entrepreneurs and businesses and opportunities. And then if you, you reflect on it, you're like, well, that sounds awfully dramatic. But then you're like, wait a minute, if we're in a democracy, there's absolutely nothing stopping a majority of us from declaring ourselves a dividend. And it's been in effect in one state for 36 years. And it passed the House of Representatives twice in 1971. So there's nothing far-fetched about it. But to your point, that this really is the kind of thing where if you go around the country, like all you hear is that people can't pay their bills. Okay. And let's get into the dollars and cents because you've estimated this would cost $2 trillion per year. So can you break that down as, as I think we only have a $4 trillion budget in total? Yeah. So the great thing here is that this does not go to grow the government pipes. This essentially just goes to us. And so the cost is a little bit more than $2 trillion. It's more like $2.5 trillion. Per year. But for context, our economy is up to 19 trillion, up 4 trillion in the last 10 years. And this thing is much more affordable than you think because we're spending so much money on similar things already. So if you break it down, the big change we need to make is that the big winners from artificial intelligence and self driving cars and trucks and big data and all these things that are going to displace millions of call center workers, retail workers, truck drivers, et cetera. The big winners are Amazon, Google, Facebook, Uber, all these really big tech companies that do not pay a lot of taxes right now. Amazon will say, we didn't make any money this quarter. We don't need to pay taxes, even though Jeff Bezos is now worth $160 billion. Google's move is to say it all went through Ireland, no taxes here. And so the American public is in a trap where more and more work and value is going to get soaked up by a handful of companies and we're not going to get anything in return. So what we need to do is we need to join every other industrialized advanced economy in the world and have a value-added tax, which a value-added tax at even half the European level, because our economy is so massive, would generate $800 billion in new revenue. So $800 billion plus a significant proportion of the $800 billion we're currently spending on 126 welfare programs, because I do not want to get rid of those programs. But if you're already receiving, let's say, $1,200 in disability, we're not going to stack 1000 on top of it. So we're substituting out some of that money so it brings the cost down. 
So now you've already paid for about 1.4 trillion of the two and a half. Now here's the magic that people have to remember. If you get $1,000, your friends get $1,000, your family members get $1,000, that money doesn't disappear. That money goes right back into the economy. It goes into car repairs, home repairs, nights out, new businesses, people moving, and it grows the consumer economy by about 12%. It would create several million jobs, and then we get back 25% of that new value in tax revenue. So that would bring back about 500 billion. And then the last 500 billion or so, you get back because we're going to save hundreds of billions on emergency room health care, incarceration, homelessness services. I was with a prison guard in New Hampshire the other month, and he said, we waste so much money in the prison system that we should just be paying people to stay out of jail. And he's right. We're going to save hundreds of billions and all this stuff we pay for because people are suffering and falling through the cracks. And then we're going to get hundreds of billions back by the fact that if you alleviate child poverty in this country, you increase GDP by $700 billion through better educational outcomes, better health outcomes, better mental health, better worker productivity. Just by making our population more whole and strong, we're going to get back a ton of value. So this thing will pay for itself in part if we pass a value-added tax. But the, the great thing about it is this is like the real thing. Trickle-down economics has never worked. And even now, Republicans are like, yeah, that, that shit never worked. But what does work is trickle-up economics. Because if you put money in the hands of an ordinary American, they're going to spend it, and all that money is going to go right back into the economy. Okay, there's a lot of different things there that we could unpack, but uh, for the average American who doesn't know about the VAT tax, can you explain a little bit how that works? I, and also, I know that you were a corporate lawyer, and for me, who's a, a small business owner, I could incorporate in Ireland a separate Irish business, but it would only be good to me, as I understand the law, for the money that flows through Europe. So if I take sales from Europe online, but I'm incorporated in Ireland, I can funnel those through a, like maybe a 10 or 11% tax rate in Ireland per se. But first, could you explain how Google actually does this for people who don't understand this loophole and then how a VAT tax would bring in money for the American government? Sure. So Google can make choices as to like where they attribute both costs and revenues in a way that most small businesses can't pull off. And the way a value-added tax makes that impossible is that anytime there's a transaction where you do a Google search and then the ad gets clicked and then Google gets paid a certain amount of money, like that because you're an American doing the search, then Google would pay like a tiny sliver of that AdWords revenue. Same thing with every Amazon transaction, same thing with every robot truck mile. It operates, if you want to simplify it, you can think of it as a sales tax that gets pushed through at every level of production. So it's not just the end user. Like if Google pays its food supplier a certain amount of money, then the value-added tax gets built into that too. So it makes it so it's impossible for any company to game. It's why, again, every other advanced economy has already done this. America actually needs to evolve from its current income tax system not only because it's ineffective and inefficient, which it is, but we also do not want to discourage any form of labor type arrangement. And if you think about it, like uh, an income tax on labor 
actually disincentivizes the thing that we need more of, which is work and labor type arrangements. Okay. And uh, I guess this would be a good time to transition to maybe a little bit of on immigration. And a lot of people, you know, right now the government is in this stalemate and Trump wants a wall. I think it's $8 billion and all of the Democrats have frozen him out and he's throwing a temper tantrum and people aren't getting paid who work for the government, etc. But how big, my question for you, as an Asian American who knows, knows his math and knows his numbers, $8 billion, how much money really is that? Because when you talk to the American people about, oh, this is going to cost $2 trillion and our GDP is $14 trillion and a wall is going to cost $8 billion, I mean, it just seems like a number with a lot of zeros. But what's, what's your opinion on the wall specifically? You know, the wall is what I'm talking about, where it's more of a symbol than a policy. It's not, you know, it's like anyone who looks at it for any length of time knows that the geography on the border makes it so that building a wall on the entire border is totally impossible. <laughs> and so what you're doing is you're sort of erecting like a barrier that's going to push traffic to one side or the other. And, and so it really is more like uh, symbolism than something that anyone thinks is going to solve the real problem. And that's really the, the huge issue with the U.S. It's one reason why like right now they can't agree on this thing, because the Democrats are like, heck no, are we going to give you one red cent to build your stupid wall? <laughs> they even said, if you just call it something other than a wall, then we can talk, because that, like, we just cannot be funding your wall. And it really just exposes the ridiculousness of our politics right now, where they're arguing over a symbol that no one who takes a look at it for any length of time thinks would actually solve the problem. You know, it's like they're like... I mean, there have been many, many examples of barriers that just have like tunnels dug under them. And we're not talking like a little tunnel. We're talking about like they freaking dig tunnels for like hundreds and hundreds of yards. (laughs) So it's just a sign of dysfunction. Instinct. I'm very naturally pro-immigrant. I mean, my parents were immigrants. I think immigrants are very good for the country. My, My father generated 69 U.S. patents in his career for GE and IBM, two great American companies. So I, I think immigrants are a huge net positive for the country. Now, we need to figure out how to enforce the border, yes, because you can't have open borders, but how to integrate the 12 million plus people who are here and undocumented. Okay. And do you believe that all of this attention is being placed on immigration, yet there are much larger issues to yes. to look at. Okay, because it, you look at it and it doesn't seem either with dollars and cents nor just with the biggest threats to the economy. It just seems like a way to polarize the American people, create a big distraction. While thank you, you brother. Yeah, you get the, well. Totally. You, yeah, you get you get the people in there from the oil companies to be your cronies and take the American people for everything they're worth when the people are looking the other way at something that's not that big of a deal. Yeah, that is exactly right. Where if you go to manufacturing communities who've lost 4 million jobs over the last 15 years, and you say, hey, it's the immigrants, they took your jobs, then they're like, oh, okay, like, then I get mad at the immigrants. It is not the immigrants. It is technology. If you go to a factory right now, in the United States of America, you'll see a bunch of giant robot arms. And I was just in Iowa last week talking to some uh, auto workers. And one of them said to me, we had six welders. Then they brought in a welding machine and it got rid of five welders. And then the last welder now just hangs out and makes sure the machine is okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
that is what is happening. And so we need to get people focused on technology. 30% of malls are going to close in the next four years. And the most common job in America is being a retail clerk. It is not that a million immigrants came in and said, we're going to take those retail jobs. It's that Amazon is sucking up another $20 billion in e-commerce every year and tipping the malls into oblivion. So we need to focus Americans on the real issues and the real problems and then real solutions. So the real problem is that our economy is evolving in ways that is minimizing the value of many, many forms of human labor. And it's just going to get worse. Artificial intelligence is going to take off and make that much more extreme. And the answer is broaden our definition of work and start distributing value to ourselves, the shareholders of this country, through a dividend. And that is why I'm running for president, to try and make these things happen in 2021, because we don't have unlimited time. When the robot cars and trucks start hitting our highways in two to five years, there's going to be you know, hell to pay, truthfully. I mean, you know, like we're heading towards historic levels of unrest, violence, and disintegration if we don't get our shit together. So there's so many people out there whose jobs picking and packing, as I've heard, are just going to go away because of automation. And the United States as an economy, as a market is becoming more efficient, but people are being left behind. But we have all of these people who were, you know, 360 million, whatever number of people are in this country. And the goal, it seems, of the government should be to provide the basic human needs so everybody can be safe, everybody can have a roof over their head, everyone can be fed, everyone can have, yeah, can take care of themselves. And sure, we're going to have machines working for us doing these things. But if you, if you talk to people who, you know, you, you seem, Andrew, just so ahead of, of your time when you talk to the regular American person i you know that's it's just past the holidays and i went home and had discussions with family members from not from flint michigan but from places like darien connecticut and when you talk to the average middle-aged white woman she thinks the 10 mexican guys standing at the corner by home depot looking for work is the actual problem with the country and they're taking they're taking everybody's jobs but how do we educate the people on what the issues actually are? You know, I had to explain to people in my family over the holidays that, sorry, it's not called global warming anymore. It's called climate change. And they, they need to get with the times a little bit. But how do we have these discussions in a more civilized way? You know, so I, I'm, I'm an operator. I'm an entrepreneur like you. Uh, and I really appreciate everyone who runs their own uh, business or, or starts their own venture because it's really hard I mean, super difficult stuff. But I ask myself the same questions, like how can we activate these conversations in the right way? Because in my opinion, we are losing. If you look at like, you know, voices of reason or progress, like we're losing, you know, you got to call it like it is. And the way that we can win is by starting a political revolution. And the political revolution is much more feasible than you think, because you don't need millions of people actually to get on board. So I'll, I'll break it down for you. It's really fun. So I'm running for president right now as a Democrat in 2020. The first state to vote is going to be Iowa in February of next year. And out of a state of 3.1 million Iowans, only 171,000 participated in the Democratic caucus last time. 5.6% of the population. Wow. Yeah, it's very low. 
And it's because caucusing in Iowa is a very high commitment process. You have to stand there for two hours and argue with your neighbors about how you know, you're supporting Joe Biden or you're supporting whomever. And so for me to become president of the United States, I need to win Iowa. And then we can activate people around uh, these ideas like, you know, it's technology, it's not immigrants. I mean, Trump came out and said it's immigrants and that popularized that belief. I'm going to come out and say it's technology and the fact that our economy is changing. And in order for me to popularize that belief, I need to get that point across to approximately 50,000 people in Iowa. If I can get 50,000 people in Iowa to agree with me that that is the problem and that them getting $1,000 a month is a big part of the solution, then I can win Iowa in 2020. And then I will become front page news on every newspaper in the world. And they will say, like, who is this man and, and how did he win Iowa? And it will say, well, he said that the problem is that we're in the third inning of the greatest technological and economic transformation in the history of the world. And here's what we need to do about it. So we need to figure out the key levers to try and change this conversation and change the game. Um, Because like you said, man, your relatives, when you went back to the holidays, they are more normal than you or me, or I'm going to guess most of the people listening to this are watching this. Because most of the people listening and watching this are probably in their 20s or 30s. (laughs) And they're looking around saying, how is it that these politicians seem like they are decades behind the times? Because they are. You know, some of them were born in the 1940s, like love them, but that's a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they they have only the faintest idea of technology. I mean, it's embarrassing how, how behind the times we are. So I joke all the time. People call me a futurist. I'm actually a presentist. It's just that I'm like so different from the other politicians because they were are stuck in the past. They're stuck in the 60s or 70s. Sure. Yeah, you're living in the present, uh, but it's you're paying attention to the things that really matter and that are here with the movers and shakers. You know, you've spent time in Silicon Valley and you know that, okay, that's the direction that the world is going. And those are the people who are leading it, the, the Jeff Bezos, Bezos types. And the people in Flint, Michigan, per se, are not keeping up. Andrew, I'll share with you that my grandfather was a small business owner in Flint, Michigan, and he had a business that fixed the assembly line in GM. And, you know, it was a a successful business at the time. And then, of course, when GM went under, uh, the entire area just had, was just put to shambles. Uh, It basically would be the easiest way to say. And when you still have family who are small business owners in that area, and I, I do kind of understand why a lot of them voted for Trump, and, and I get it. They feel very disenfranchised. But with all of that, you can have these dialogues, but people are going to ask, all right, I got my $1,000. Now what? Uh, I can drive for Uber, but Andrew says that those jobs are going to be gone soon because they're going to be automated cars. You know, I can hardly be a, yeah, any type of picker and packer anymore because those jobs are going away. I don't exactly see some of my middle-aged family members who Social Security isn't kicking in for a long time for going to a coding school at the University of Michigan uh, down the road in Ann Arbor. So, what do we do with this mass of people who still that $1,000 isn't enough for? Yes. So this is where the evolution really has to come in. So what I'm 
suggesting is that we not only broaden the definition of work through something like universal basic income, but that we also need to evolve from our definition of economic growth, where the GDP is something we made up almost 100 years ago during the Great Depression. And GDP will ignore my wife staying home with our kids or you doing something in the community or trying to make the environment more sustainable, the economy more environmentally friendly. So what we need to do is we need to actually change the economic measurements to incorporate how our kids are doing, how our environment is doing, how our mental health is developing, how much people enjoy their work, what the average income and affordability are. And then this is the great thing is that if you change our definition of the economy, then you create millions and millions of new opportunities. Where right now, if I go and I volunteer at the local community center, then it's like, uh, that's nice. It doesn't really matter. Like, you know, maybe like, you know, I used to volunteer. But then in the new economy, it's like, oh, if I do something positive for the community, I actually get economic value for that and get paid. And so we would create new definitions of economic progress. And here's where it gets trippy. But I have a feeling you're going to love it. And many of your listeners are going to love it. Then we come up with a new currency. And the new currency is actually exchangeable for dollars. So it's real. You know, you can just go and get dollars for it. And everyone knows that. But then we can use this new currency to reward creators, reward artists, reward business people, reward people that are journalists. Because unfortunately, journalism now is like no longer monetizable in many communities. And we can create many, many new forms of work. But that stuff will not happen the way we've currently defined economic progress and the way we define labor. Because if you want to try and beautify your, your community, no one's going to pay you for that. <laughs> you know, like there's, sure. no, there's, no job, there's no money. So we need to start evolving quickly. The first big step is uh, universal-based income, which would help people get, adopt a mindset of abundance and the future. And then you can get people working on many different projects because we have a lot of work to do. We have huge challenges ahead. It's just the problem is that that work is not being rewarded or measured by the market as it's currently working. So for the able-bodied people out there, and I'm just thinking entrepreneurially here, why not have them, you you could have a list of things on an app that they could go out and do in their local community to earn themselves credits and then cash that in. That is exactly right. That is the vision. Could we do that? Before we give them the money and say, hey, look, if you go and sweep your sweep the sidewalk, that's going to give you 12 or bucks an hour. Or, or help, even just okay. go into your neighbor's place and like help repair their boiler or move crap out of the yard. Like, you know, we could have a whole economy built around helping other people. Do you think it's that would be better than just giving people the money straight away? I do not. Because uh, in part because the government is shitty at most things. And so if you if you had to try and devise some way, it's like, hey, you have to do like 20 hours of like stuff for your neighbors in order to get paid enough to live. <laughs> like if it becomes really dark and bureaucratic quickly. Mm-hmm. It's much, much better to because the government's great at one thing. The government's great at sending large numbers of checks to large numbers of people promptly and reliably every month. Because about half of Americans are already getting checks. So what's at it? So we just go bigger on that and then get people's heads up. And then you layer on top of it what you're describing, which is this whole new set of opportunities that can help move society forward. 
But in my opinion, we're going to have plenty still to do in terms of rewarding people and monetizing those activities, even after people are getting a thousand bucks a month. Okay. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) And, And the difference though would be that what you're suggesting, because the way I frame this freedom dividend is it's not a work replacement. You're not getting like $3,000 a month. (laughs) You know, if you were getting $3,000 a month, then I might agree with you that we need to start building in more of these activities. Sure. But if you're just giving the thousand as the floor, then the other 2000 come on the basis of activities. Sure. Yeah. $250 a week. You could make that in a a day. Yeah. In a day or two, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. When you kind of break it down, what, what type of work it would actually a day or two a week. Okay. That's That's interesting, Andrew. Okay. So I, I just want to, to ask you, I, I sort of asked before, but what do you think is the biggest issue facing the American people right now? I think it's um, number one is the fact that our economy is changing in ways that is literally driving us crazy. And by, by that, what I mean is if you can't pay your bills, your IQ goes down by 13 points. And it makes you less reasonable, less rational, less forward thinking, and more prone to bad decisions and bad ideas. And that's just spreading throughout the economy. I mean, we've talked about retail workers, call center workers, truck drivers, limo drivers, and pick and packers. But you're also talking very quickly about accountants, lawyers, radiologists, pharmacists, (laughs) financial planners. I mean, this stuff, AI is going to eat a lot of work very, very quickly. And we, so we need to reorganize the economy. So number one, like existential crisis number one is that our institutions are failing, our society and our political discourses are like going down the tubes because of the way our economy is changing. So that's number one. And then 1A is climate change because we're, we're setting ourselves up for epic disaster where uh, entire communities are going to eventually become uninhabitable and the rest of it. So those two things are linked. And by this, what I mean is like, if you go to someone who can't pay their bills and say, hey, we need to adapt to climate change, how are they going to respond? They'll, they'll say, I can't pay my bills. So like, I don't care about the penguins. Sure. You know? Like that, that is the reality. If they have a, a, a secure future and you say, hey, we need to worry about climate change, then they'll say, yeah, that's right. I've got a niece or nephew and like, you know, I can't leave them uh, like a terrible planet. <laughs> you know? So right. So it's one and one A are tied together. Number one is the transforming economy is pushing more and more hum- more and more of us to the sidelines. And then 1A is climate change as a, a global existential threat. Sure. And I, I totally agree about the piece where w- once people are to a certain base level, then they can start thinking outside of themselves a little bit more about the good of humanity. I own a tour operator and we run a lot of trips through the sacred da- valley of Peru. And we're always talking about sustainable tourism and how we can make these trips uh, good for the environment and keep the money local, these types of things. And we had a, our Peruvian manager stand up one day and say, look, guys, I, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate all that you're talking about educating our travelers on how they can use less plastics and petroleum-based stuff and calculating our carbon footprint here. But that little lady that's standing out there trying to sell her water bottle so she can feed her kids, she doesn't give a shit where if it ends up in the garbage or it ends up in the forest. It really doesn't matter to her. She needs that 30 Peruvian soles to, to feed her family. So yeah, I, I agree that people in Iowa who, who are struggling with the same type of things, yeah, that, that may 
may do something for them. Andrew, people are going to say, all right, when when people get the money who are already addicted to opioids, who are already in poverty, who are going to use this money to gamble and hire prostitutes, what do you say to them? You know, I just look at the numbers where if you look at what's happened when people get money, you don't see an increase in substance abuse. Uh, you don't see a decrease in work hours, except for new moms and teenagers who stay in school at higher levels. We definitely have a drug crisis in this country, but it's not like a lack of money right now is keeping people from getting their hands on the drugs that they want. You know, if anything, uh, they'll they'll get that money like you know through uh, theft and criminal activities that they have to. So putting money into people's hands will actually enable a greater proportion of people to pay for treatment. Because treatment is really, really expensive, and most people can't afford it. So if you look at the numbers, you see that there's no reason to expect a spike in um, use and abuse uh, beyond current levels, and that there are many, many positives that are going to come on the other side. Sure. And I just hope that people don't use those types of headlines to blow things out of the water, like the bad hombres coming into the country and uh, creating all the issues. Yeah, no, there's like a strange reactiveness around that, too, where it's like people are like, oh, like these other folks, like what if someone does drugs or whatever? And it's like, well, you know, think about like, (laughs) you know, like all the people, you know, like how many of them are you worried about going to run out and (laughs) do drugs with them? How many others would just be paying down their school loans and like trying to do something positive? I mean, it's uh, I mean, again, like we have to start believing in ourselves and our people. It's the only way forward, the only way out. Believing in institutions has not helped. <laughs> so, so, you know, we need to start believing in ourselves and our people. We are the owners and shareholders of this country. And anyone who wants to help make this a reality, please do come to my website, yang2020.com, my campaign's website, or just Google Andrew Yang. We've raised already uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars from regular people around the country, and the average donation is only $11. So I joke that my fans are even cheaper than Bernie's fans. But if you believe that people getting $1,000 a month would be better for their mental health and the economy and uh, the health of our society overall, let's make it happen together. If enough of us get together, there's no stopping us. That's excellent. Uh, Andrew, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Before I let you go, I want to ask you what you're doing is really, I I don't want to say courageous and hype you up here, but you're going out as somebody who is entrepreneurially minded and you're saying, look, I'm going to run for president. I'm not going to run for city councilman. I'm not going to run for mayor. I'm not even running for governor or for the Senate. I'm looking at the big seat here. And a lot of people, there's something to be said for that. For a lot of people listening, I'm curious what is that that motivation and not for okay you see the doomsday coming and we're in the third inning but that you know that any that this is america and that anybody can step up and decide hey i do want to be president especially someone who is asian american we've never had someone come from your background and become the united states president so i'm curious what motivates you intrinsically and how people can harness what you are doing and say, I can make a change in my community. Well, thanks for saying so, man. I mean, uh, like I, my motivations, I genuinely, like I'm a parent, an American, a patriot, and I see my country going down the tubes 
and I think I can do something about it. And then if you just do a cost benefit and be like, well, I think I have a chance to meaningfully accelerate the eradication of poverty in this country and help get us through this historic set of challenges. And then my downsides are time, time away from my family, some money, my reputation, maybe. <laughs> so, so like, you know, if you look at it, it's like the trade-offs, it's like, well, let's see how much good we can do, like uh, as fast as we can. Um, there's certainly a level of uh, bulletproofness or confidence that one would, and I was like the opposite of a confident kid. I was like the small, nerdy Asian kid in the corner. But I think just like you, and this is the fun part of being an entrepreneur, is like start a business, fail, work at another company, become CEO, it gets acquired, start uh, an organization, grows to millions of dollars, get awards, a movie gets made about you, write a book or two, like, you know, books reviewed on the front page of the New York Times. And then you're like, wait a minute, I can do this shit. Like, there's no one else around that's like, I'm looking at them being like, oh, that person should do it instead of me. And if I thought that someone else was going to do it and do a better job than I was, I'd just be freaking like clapping and cheerleading for that person. I'd be like, yeah, go do it. Because I'm on the record saying like, I have no regard for, you know, my own political future. Like, I don't care about like, uh, you know, trying to advance myself like along some hierarchy. Like, I'm trying to solve the biggest problems uh, our society has ever seen and faced. Donald Trump is a symptom. He's not the cause. He's a symptom. And I believe I can do something about it. So I, I have to do my best to try. Well, thank you for that. If you're not doing it as president, I'm sure you'll be out there continuing to encourage people to do this as entrepreneurs and solve the greatest problems, as, as you say. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Love entrepreneurs. Love what you're doing. Love travel. Love the earth. And this community you built, this businesses, the center of enterprises, it's really awesome and impressive. Uh, and it's one reason I was excited to have this conversation, because I feel like uh, you and I are cut from a very similar cloth. And that this is uh, my tribe, really. So it's a pleasure to be here with you. And keep up the awesome work. Everyone listening to this, too, you can do it. I have failed. I have failed again. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can do it. It's hard. It's brutal. It's punishing. It's isolating. But you can make incredible things happen. I, I've seen it myself. I've lived it. Well, thank you, Andrew. One more time, where can people reach out to you and get involved? Sure. So uh, yang2020.com is a website. You can Google Andrew Yang and I'll pop up. You can follow me on Twitter at Andrew Yang VFA. But let's fight for our future together. Let's, let's make it better because unfortunately, we have our work cut out for us. Excellent, Andrew. Well, I'm looking forward to following along here. And uh, yeah, let's keep in touch. It was great to speak to you today. You too, man. Have a great new year. All right. Thank you.